Well, it's our joy to come once again to the Word of God, to worship Him through the study of His Word. So please take your Bibles with me and open them once again to our study of Romans chapter 5. And let me just read for us verses 1 to 5 before we pray. The Apostle Paul says to us, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we are so needful of you. As we open your word this morning, we need to hear from you. We need to understand you. We know that when we understand and we truly see you for who you are, it enriches our lives, enriches our hearts, encourages us, motivates us, and also challenges us. Because we see ourselves for who we are and we see our failures. Lord, it is such a privilege, a joy to be able to open your word together. And so we dependently come before you asking that you would indeed illumine us. Cause us to hear and understand with clear eyes, freshness, what you have for us this morning from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you this morning to define hope, what would your definition be? The word hope is a great word. It is used several places in the Scriptures, and we find it even in the text we are approaching this morning. And yet, it seems over the years it has fallen into what I like to call disrepair in the minds of many when it comes to its actual meaning. I was in my study this week doing some reading, and as I often do, I reached for my dictionary app. That's what we do now. We don't reach for a large book. We reach for an app. And so I reached for my dictionary app, and I looked up what the world says about hope, how it is defined by unsaved humanity. This is what it said in the Oxford Dictionary of English. It gave basically two, two definitions or two ideas of it. It said, first of all, it is a feeling of expectation and a desire for a particular thing to happen. An expectation and a desire for a particular thing to happen. And it gave examples of how that might be used in our own language. It said things like this. He looked through the belongings in the hope of coming across some information. In other words, he looked through whatever it was he was looking through as a way of an example with a feeling of expectation and a desire for a particular thing to happen. I had high hopes, someone else might say, of becoming part of such and such Olympic team or whatever it might very well be. So that is one sense in which the world gives for this idea of hope. They gave another one. It's an archaic sense, they said. It's an archaic sense of feeling or trust. A feeling of trust in an archaic kind of way. For example, they were hoping against hope that he would find a way out. That's an interesting way that they use it in the English dictionary, since those are words of the Apostle Paul. Meaning, when they said that, that they are clinging to the mere possibility that something might happen. This feeling, this archaic sense of feeling of trust, this idea of trust even is just this idea in which they are hoping for or have this 
clinging to a mere possibility that something might, in fact, take place. So if I were to summarize all of that, I would say that it's a whole lot of information about things with some optimistic desire, some optimistic idea, but there is no certainty that can be counted on. That's how the world would define hope. There is a desire, a feeling of expectation, but no real certainty for how it would happen or come about. Maybe maybe that's how you would define hope. A feeling, a desire only. Or maybe you've always thought of hope as a way of expressing just something in a polite way. You use hope in this way. I hope I'm not bothering you. That's just simply using it without any real sense of meaning or the expectation that maybe you haven't bothered somebody. Or maybe even you've adopted the definition of the philosopher Voltaire. Here was his definition of hope. Hope is a Christian virtue which consists of despising all poor things here below in expectation of enjoying in an unknown country unknown joys which our priests promise us for the worth of our money. He had obvious cynicism about religion in general and particularly about the Catholic Church in particular. Or maybe you would think of hope like Frederick Nietzsche. Hope, he said, quote, is the worst of evils because it prolongs the torment of man, unquote. The final two, Voltaire and Nietzsche, I think, are the saddest examples of all. And yet even, it seems, even the Apostle Paul, in rebuking the Corinthian believers for those kinds of views, the views that I have given from the world, Paul says to them, if we Christians are to hope in this world only, you see, that's that's the kind of hope the world has. That's the kind of hope Nietzsche would talk about. That's the kind of hope Voltaire is, is very cynical about. If we are to hope in this world only, then we are the most to be pitied. So even the Corinthian church had adopted in some way that kind of hope. Because they were decrying, they had false teachers who were saying the resurrection wasn't going to happen. And they're decrying the reality of certainty. These are professing believers who had amazingly began to divine hope in the Christian life like the world. Something without certainty, something without actual concreteness. And so the best the world can do is to describe hope as that desired expectation, yet with no actual certainty. In fact, if the world was actually honest with themselves, they would just put hope in the realm of fantasy. A a, a mystical non-reality is what they would really place it, because that's really where it's placed in the world's definition of hope. But that is not how God defines hope. In fact, here's how the Greek world looked at hope in general. The secular Greek concept of hope was this. Plato says that human existence is determined not merely by acceptance of the present and recollection of the past, but also by expectation of the future. doesn't matter if it's good or bad. So Plato is using the same definitions that we see even now in our modern day, which have come in the Oxford Dictionary where the world defines hope. Hope, for the Greek world even, was subjective. It was a subjective projection on the future. Hope, for the secular Greek, was simply a comfort in distress. But it was also deceptive. It was uncertain. Except in the case, as they would say, of the wise. Because the wise based their hope on, get this, scientific investigation. 
In other words, if it can be proven by science, then we have real hope. Does that sound familiar? So for Plato, what was at work in hope is an impulse toward the beautiful and the good. An impulse toward that, but no sense of real certainty. Hope extended beyond the present life simply to give you this fantasy about not fearing death. The Stoics were similar. There's no interest for the Stoics in hope, actually. They would use the word only in a sense of expectation uh, in that projection of the future, but they really didn't even believe in it at all. It really was a fantasy for them altogether. And those kind of ideas also uh, influenced Philo, who came a little later, uh, that kind of psychology, he believed hope to be a neutral expectation, though usually of the good, it was something that offered comfort in distress, but only as your own projection of the future. But still, no certainty. You move on a little in history and how the Greeks would have viewed it in the Scriptures when it came to the Old Testament Scriptures because the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the Old Testament usage of the Greek word elpis for hope, there's no neutral expectation. When you get into the Scriptures, there's no idea of this neutral expectation, whether it's good or bad. Hope is the expectation of good, and it is linked with trust. It is linked with desire and differentiated from fear. Why? Because its point of reference is God Himself. That's the idea. Jeremiah 17.7, I think, lays the the axe at the base of the root of the tree of foolishness in the world's definition of hope, because here's what it says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust, get this, is the Lord. So to actually hope is to trust. And it is demanded even in good times. It isn't demanded simply because things are bad and I Hope, I trust the future comes out. Is this this future fantasy expectation? No, it is to hope in good times also. So it is uh, not our own projection of future expectations. It rather is a confidence of what God will do. Why? Because God is the hope. God is the hope. So it has nothing to do with any calculation that may give us a false sense of security. In fact, when you see the word elpis used in Scripture that kind of gives these philosophical ideas, we are not to trust in those. We are not to trust in riches. We're not to have hope in riches, Job 31.24 says. We're not even to hope in our righteousness because we don't have any. Christ has righteousness. It's been given to us, but that's not, that's not ours by way of its inherent Reality in nature, it is Christ's righteousness. We are not to trust in our righteousness, Ezekiel 33:13 says. We're not to trust in our human religious inheritance, Jeremiah 7:4. So biblical hope looks to only one place. It looks to God. It looks to God whom no one can control. What did the early Christians think? What do the early Christians think about hope? The New Testament concept of hope is essentially taken from the Old Testament. Only when there is this sphere of the secular happening in the descriptions of hope in Scripture does that word get used simply as a good ex, uh, expectation of something. For example, it's used as counting upon in Luke 6 and 1 Corinthians 9 or with a with more of an accent on hoping the idea of this future expectation, Luke 23, Acts 24, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16, these ideas where the secular idea comes in. But when it's fixed on God, when our hope is on God, hope embraces an actual expectation with trust that patiently waits. That's the idea. You can see that linked with faith in Hebrews chapter 11 there. In that verse, it stresses the certainty 
of what is divinely given to us as Christians. We have a certainty. Romans 8, verse 24 and 25, make it not only the point that we do not hope for what is visible. That's what it says there. We, we don't hope. When you see things, that's not hope. We don't hope on what is visible in the present, but it also, in that verse, makes it the point, Romans 8, makes the point that what is visible, what is present, offers no basis for real hope. Why? Because it belongs to the sphere of the temporal. It belongs here. We have no hope in this stuff, in this thing. And so we have to wait patiently in hope. We have to wait patiently, unable to count on uncontrollable factors, thereby our dependence is completely on God. So hope is an integral part of our Christian life. In fact, Colossians 1.27 says it this way to us as Christians. Paul says, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. What is that, Paul? Christ in you, what? The hope of glory. Christ in us is the hope of glory. So inherent with biblical hope is the reality of certainty. Why? Because it's not based upon what is seen. It's not based upon the temporal world. It's not based upon the here and now. But in that which is not seen, Christ in us, who is our hope of glory, Colossians 1.27 says. And all of that is not grounded in us. All of that is grounded in Christ. All of that is grounded in God. So... I say all that by introduction so that as we come to Romans chapter 5 again, we are reminded once again that one of the results of the Christian's justification, one of the results of us having been justified, one of these positive consequences is that we notice at the end of verse 2, we exult in hope of the glory of God. talked about these as we've gone along through this passage. We, we have a new condition, Paul has told us already. We have peace with God, something we cannot earn. It is a change of condition because we were under wrath. Now we were in peace with God. We have a condition by which God is no longer our enemy. We talked about all the glorious things that that means and what that ought to mean for us as we live Then we said there's a new position that we have, right? We have a new position. We stand in grace. It's through Christ that we have peace with God. It is through Christ also that we have obtained our introduction or our access, as we saw, by faith into this grace in which we stand. You don't come into grace and you can't leave grace. You are in grace. It is a realm in which you are in. You cannot earn grace. You you did nothing to earn grace. It was all of Christ. Because you are attached to Christ, because you are unified with Christ, by way of salvation in Christ and that justification came with it. All the benefits of that justification are there in Christ and you are in grace. Cannot get out. So then Paul says, thirdly, we exult in the hope of glorification. We exult in the hope of glorification. Now that's easy for us to see, I think. But I want to know, what I want to know as I interact with the Apostle Paul, what does it mean to exult in the hope of the glory of God? We know, and we should now understand, that biblical hope is certainty. It's certainty because it's based upon God, not based upon us. So Paul says here that since we have been justified by faith in Christ, then we also, within that reality, we also ought to exult in the certainty of glorification. You see, I just 
replace the word hope there with that idea of certainty. We exult in the certainty of this reality of the glory of God, and that includes the reality of our glorification. And I hope you see that as we walk through this, because this is such a wonderful declaration that we ought it ought to cover us like a warm blanket. I think I said to to my wife this week, it's it's like coming home on a very cold day and stepping into that shower and the hot water hits you and you just go, oh, that's what this ought to do for us. The word exult here is an interesting word because it's the idea of boasting, the idea of exuberant joy. Not, not boasting like we think of boasting, but the idea of exuberant joy. The idea, it, it carries really the idea, and we're not going to like this either in our ears, but it, it carries the idea of congratulating yourself. Now, we think about it in that way. It doesn't necessarily bring good ideas to us, especially as Christians. To congratulate myself sounds very arrogant. Hey, look at me. Look what I did. But that's not the way we should look at it. We're not to look at this as if we've personally succeeded in something. That's only one way to look at this word, but that's not how the Apostle Paul is using it. It's the wrong way. Rather, we need to look at this from the standpoint of something we've received. Something we've received. I was thinking about this earlier, this idea of scholarships. We, Some of you kids are in the college search. You understand scholarships. You understand you have to apply for these scholarships, and those scholarships are based merit-based scholarships, right? Well, however you did, and, and they take all kinds of factors into that, and some people get those scholarships, and we go, oh, congratulations, you got a scholarship in that, nice, you received that. Well, they did something to get that. But what about the kid who sits out there and does nothing? In fact, he's the worst of his class. He's done none of the assignments. He hasn't a grade to show for anything. His community service is zero. He has nothing on any line by which he could put anything on an application to get a scholarship. And yet from the podium he hears his name, Johnny Smith, you have a full-ride scholarship. Are you kidding me? That's what he would say. People, he would go up there, he would receive it, and people would come to him and say, congratulations. This is what Paul is talking about. This is the idea. There has been a favor shown to us as Christians, and so we are to boast about it. We are to literally glory in it. As if someone were congratulating us for receiving it. You see, the world loves to boast about what it has accomplished. In fact, I was thinking about this earlier. This was the Apostle Paul before his conversion. Paul loved to boast. Paul loved to boast. Before his conversion, it wasn't good. After his conversion, it was very necessary. Here's what Paul says. It's recorded for us in Philippians chapter 3. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law I was a Pharisee, as to zeal I was a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness by the way of the law I was blameless. Hey, look at me! What a great guy I am! Pat me on the back, give me congratulations, this is who I am. That's Paul before conversion. Boasting about all his worldly gain. But after conversion, his boasting changed. Oh, he still boasts, but he boasts with this kind of boasting. It was changed into boasting about his position in Christ, his glory to come because of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 to 21. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. In other words, they're reflecting, they're boasting, their life is just shameful by what they're doing. They set their minds on earthly things, he says. But not us. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
from which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's not saying, hey, listen, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews anymore. He said, no, none of that matters to me. I'm going to be in glory with Christ because of Christ. And he's going to transform the the body of our humble state into the conformity of the body of his glory. How? By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Paul said, it isn't about me anymore. Now it's about Christ. Before it was all about the glory of Paul. Now it's all about the glory of Christ. And so Paul says here in Romans chapter 5 that we boast or we ought to be boasting in the hope of the glory of God. And I still ask myself the question, okay, Paul, but what does that mean? In other words, Paul is saying to us, here you are. You have believed in Jesus Christ. You believe that you are now innocent before God and God has declared your innocence and you trust that you are innocent before God. You have been justified, he says. Then if you realize what you are saying, you should be boasting in the certainty of the glory of God. What is he saying we should be doing? We should be boasting in glorification. What is he saying? Let me lay out for us five implicational ways that I think that I just listed down in my own heart and mind that should flow out of our understanding of boasting in our glorification or in the glory of God. In other words, since we are absolutely secure in Christ, then here are some implications for our boasting. Implication number one is this. When we boast in the certainty of the glory of God, we ought to be actually excited about seeing the glory of God. When we are have exuberant joy, that exulting, that exuberant joy in the certainty of the glory of God, we ought in our life be excited about Seeing the glory of God. Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew chapter 5 with the Sermon on the Mount. Randy read the end of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. At the beginning of that sermon, he begins that sermon with what we know as the Beatitudes. Right? Blessed are the, and he gives all kinds of things. Well, in verse 8 he says this, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall what? See God. Listen, those who know Jesus Christ by faith faith, also know God the Father. If you know Jesus Christ by faith, then you know God the Father because Jesus Christ and God the Father are one. And we ought to be actually excited about seeing God the Father. Sometimes we get more excited about the idea of seeing golden streets that are so pure you can see through them than seeing the one who created it. Paul says, understanding justification should produce in us an exuberant joy about the glory of God because that is the ultimate goal of our faith, is it not? The ultimate object of our salvation is that it brings us to the place where we began, paradise restored where we will be for a long, long, long time, standing before God and seeing His glory on full display. Listen to Revelation 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in it, that is heaven. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. We ought to be boasting about that reality. We ought to have exuberant joy about that reality. There is coming a day, because I am justified, there is coming a day because you, if you know Christ by faith, have been justified, there is coming a day, that that glorious day, when you are going to see God. That ought to produce in us, as Christians, exuberant joy. 
Why? Because understanding that, we realize that being able to stand before God was not always the case for us. The Old Testament reveals it. Exodus 33, verse 18 to 20. You remember, Moses asked God, I pray you show me your glory. Moses is there. He wants to see God in His glory. Show me your glory. God says to him graciously, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But, he said, you shall not see my face, for no man can see me and live. Because of sin, we fell short of the glory of God in both reflection and in standing. We were created in the imagio Dei, the, the image of God, and yet we, because of sin, that reflection and that image has been distorted. But in Christ, all of that has changed. And so now we boast in the certainty of seeing His glory. So if we understand our justification in Jesus Christ, if, if, if your understanding isn't producing in you an exuberant joy to see God, then you need to look at justification again. You need to look at the reality of that. You need to look at the details of that. You need to look at your own heart before that. Get it settled in your mind. Get it settled in your heart about you that if you believe in Jesus Christ and that you have been justified by faith. The exercise of that has taken place in the glories of God. God has declared that about you. It is producing in you a, a, an obedience, a desire for the things of God. You are seeing victory in your life, although not perfect in any kind of way. And yet you have that desire. If you are saved, you are saved from the wrath of God. You will see the glory of God. That ought to excite you. That ought to excite you. Well, that's implication number one. We will see the glory of God. That's a second implicational truth. It's tied to the first, but it's a bit different. We boast in the certainty of seeing the glory of Christ. We boast in the glory of seeing God the Father glorified in all of it, in the blazing glory of God face to face, which we could not do before. But we also want to see and should want to see and see the certainty, the reality of the glory of Jesus Christ. Did you know this is the desire of Jesus Christ for us, that we see Him in His glory? John 17, beginning in verse 20, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, talking about the disciples that He's praying for right there, but for those who also believe in Me through their word. And guess what? That's you and I. Down through the history... One passes on the gospel to another. It began there. We believe through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world might believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I've given it to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Why? So that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ wants us to see His full blazing glory that He had before He ever became the Son. Before the incarnation ever took place, Jesus wants us to see Him in His full glory. And we are not simply to be looking forward to it. We are to be rightfully boasting about it. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve tells us that we now see in a glass dimly but then face to face. See, He's given us His glory. We see the glory in, in the rest of the Christian world around us and the glory in our own lives as we reflect the very character of God when we obey God and, and submit to God and do what God has said. His glory in, in, a, in a dimly 
uh, in an earthen vessel, it's cat kind of way, shines. But we're going to stand in the presence of God and we are going to see His glory in full radiance. And we will see, just as Stephen did in Acts chapter 7 as he's being stoned and looks up into heaven, he sees Jesus Christ standing at the Father's right hand in full glory. No longer will His glory be seen dimly. No longer will it be seen dimly through us. We will see Him face to face. Listen, we ought to be excited about that as Christians. We ought to be excited about that. We we need to be excited about the glory of God. We need to be excited about the glory of Jesus Christ. There's a third implicational truth that we can think of that ought to flow from this reality. Not only do we see the see God in the full radiance of His glory, not only do we get to see Jesus Christ in the full radiance of His glory, but also we are going to be glorified ourselves. You're going to be glorified. I'm going to be glorified. And we ought to boast about it. There used to be a, a pin years ago in the early 70s, late 70s maybe, early 70s. People used to wear it said, Be patient, God isn't finished with me yet. We're going to be glorified. We have to be glorified because we can't stand in His presence as we are now. Before, that is before faith in Jesus Christ, before God declared us righteous, the result of sin was that we had fallen away from a communion with God. The communion that we should have had been enjoying from the creation of the world in Adam, we, we in Adam were sinful. We were meant for the glory of God. We were created for the glory of God. We were created to see the glory of God. And we were created to reflect the glory of God. But because of sin, Romans 3.23 says we all fall what? Short. as believers, we are going to possess that full glory again. We're going to possess it again. Notice how Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter 8. Go over to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. This is an incredible passage. Paul shares with us in beginning in verse 26, saying we have the Spirit that helps in our weakness. He intercedes with us. He, he goes before the Father because even our Spirit doesn't know what to ask, but He knows. And so we know that, that even in those kinds of things, God works all of that out for His glory, our good. Verse 28 says, why? Because whom He foreknew, He also predetermined or predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Glorified. Paul says we are glorified, past tense. We are glorified. What is that? Glorification of us is that idea of completion. That idea of completion in every way through our salvation in Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus. That's how we got there. This is the legal union we have with Christ. The actual union we have with Christ. It was His doing, God's doing that got us there who became to us, this is Jesus Christ, became to us what? Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that what? Just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. So in Jesus Christ we are justified. We are being sanctified in every practical way just as we are absolutely pure before God in the heavenly realms because He sees Jesus Christ and we will be fully glorified. We will be fully redeemed in every way in order to fulfill and reflect the image of God as God intended us at the time of creation. 
It's a done deal in the mind of God. And that means that even our earthly bodies will be done away with and all of the effects of the fall will be gone. You will not see a flaw in you in the glories of heaven. Some of us are really going to be different when we're glorified. Recognizable, but very different. I was thinking about this today, about beauty in our world. Isn't it good to know that all the beauty of this world is just a relative beauty? It's a relative beauty. It doesn't matter what it is. It's all affected by the fall. All the beauty of this world is affected by the fall. It doesn't matter. You can find the most beautiful thing in all of creation. You can find the most beautiful flowering plant and look at it and marvel at it in all its beauty. You can find the most beautiful of all the animals that God has ever created, or at least in your mind is the most beautiful, the most beautiful and admired person because of their beauty in this world. And I will take all of those and show you the reality that it's all relative beauty. It's all relative. You say, what do you mean? I mean, it's all subject to decay. It's all subject to decay. It's all subject to the effects of the fall. Why? Because we're all decaying. Do you ever wonder why iron just seems to rust? You can lay it outside, you're not doing anything to it, but it produces rust. You know why? Because it's decaying, it's oxidizing. Everything is going to decay. That's why I always laugh when scientists say a plastic bottle takes 400 years to decay. How do they know? Have they had plastic for 400 years? They also would say to us that it takes thousands of years or even millions of years for a tree to petrify, but that's not what they found out in Oregon when Mount St. Helens exploded. Trees petrified in a moment because they were under that water in an instant. It wasn't thousands of years. There's no real beauty this side of heaven. That's the idea. No real beauty, no lasting beauty, but when we are glorified, when the results and the consequences of sin are fully removed, every one of us will be glorious in beauty. 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3 says it this way, Beloved, now we are children of God. That's a fact. Now we are children of God. Don't let that... Go away from your understanding. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. You see? So, what is the effect of that idea, that ramification, that understanding upon your life? What's the effect? Here's how John says it. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself even as He is pure. You see, if you have that hope, if you have that understanding, if you have that realization of what you're going to be, that the glorification of God is coming, you're going to live now in a way that obeys God, that purifies your life, that walks in obedience to Him, that submits to the Word of God because you have your hope fixed on Him. You have your certainty there. What Paul is telling us is that we ought to be looking forward to that day. It is certain. We ought to be bragging about that day when we will see God. We ought to be bragging about the day when we're going to see Jesus Christ for who He is and we're going to be perfectly glorified in every way. There's a fourth implicational truth. God will be praised in every place. God will be praised in every place on that day when God is fully glorified. You say, how do you know that? Philippians 2 tells us that. Philippians 2 clearly tells us that when Jesus Christ came, although He existed in the form of God, verse 6, He didn't regard equality with God something He would grasp, but emptied Himself, took on the form of a bondservant, 
And so when he died that death on a cross, God highly exalts him, bestows upon him the name which is above every name, the name of Jesus, in which every knee is going to bow. Every knee? Are you sure? Yeah, every knee. Those in heaven, those on earth, those who are under the earth, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because God said, this is my son. Believe on him. And every tongue is going to confess. Every tongue is going to say, you're right, he is Lord, and that will give glory to the Father. Oh, we live in a world, we live in a temporal place where the name of God is hated. We see it more and more in our day. He is disdained by the world and even within evangelicalism because of disobedience to His Word, because of deception that has come in by charlatans who try to preach other than what God's Word teaches. There is coming a day when the reality will be done away with. That foolish false reality will be gone when every created being those who are alive those who have died those who are in heaven the angelic realm all throughout history will willingly acknowledge exactly who jesus christ is and their very words will be their judgment so paul is saying in philippians 2 that jesus will be glorified by everybody I long to see that day. I long to see that day. I want to be a Christian that rightly boasts about that coming day. One who looks forward to that day, not because of its judgment. Not because of its judgment upon those who have rejected. If I understand that day of judgment rightly, it would send me to rush to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, I long to see that day because my Savior is fully recognized for who He truly is. I listed one final implication of truth. And it's this, that we will be completely sinless. When we exult in the hope of the glory of God, we're going to be completely sinless. Go back once again to Romans 8. We'll just finish with this. Romans 8 says it this way. For the creation was subjected to futility. Beginning in verse 20. Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom, get this, of the glory of the children of God. When we no longer are under the realm of this sinful creation because of the sinfulness of men and creation is returned to its fullness of glory because man has been returned to his fullness of glory, creation is Praising God because it's been under this curse for a long, long time. Creation is waiting for the day when we are returned back to our full glory. Paul says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, we also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We are waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one also hope for what he sees? Paul says, listen, hoping isn't a visible thing, it's an invisible reality. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. You see, the certainty and the reality of our sinless state to come, we wait on that and we trust on that and we say, God, come please quickly. This is our certainty. Work of glorification has already been 
finished in the mind and the heart of God, and we must relegate that not to some future expectation only. Not to the reality that, boy, I certainly hope this happens. We have to embrace it as an absolute reality now. Absolute certainty. If you are justified, if you know Jesus Christ by faith, having been justified, then you have peace with God. And having been justified, you stand in grace. And you are glorified. We have to learn to make our boast in these things. And understanding the doctrine of justification rightly means that we have certainty of salvation. That's what it means. We don't have to doubt that. Well, it's only going to get better. I don't know how when we think about these truths, but the next one says we exalt in our tribulations. That's such a large thing for Paul here. We got to wait. We got to get to it next time because there's just so much of it here. In fact, it takes us all the way down to verse 10 because the last one is right there in verse 11. And we also exult in God. So we'll leave it there for now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for sharing with us these truths about glorification, about how your full glory will be one day on display for all of us who know you to see how Jesus Christ will be trumpeted from every voice. No matter whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, every voice will declare that you are indeed Lord, which will bring you even more glory. And so, Lord, we just want to live with those things in our mind and our heart and have that certainty and trust in you that all that you have told us, the reality of our innocence is secure before you, the reality of our position in Jesus Christ is secure in you, our glorification and completion is completely secure in you. We must simply have this heart and mind to purify ourselves even as you are pure. So move us in that direction, Lord. By your Spirit, we pray. Help us to submit to your word that we might honor your name in all things because of our Savior Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.